Welcome, everyone, to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Last Week in Texas podcast. This is Wayne Stacy, and it's February. Actually, it's March 1st. Uh, so welcome to March. Today, we're here with Michael Smith once again. Uh, Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Wayne. So, Michael, uh, we, we missed a week. Uh, ice storms, trials, all sorts of fun in Texas but it didn't keep the courts from pushing out several really interesting rulings. Well, that's true. The, the first couple that I thought were really interesting last week were uh, cases dealing with uh, Section 285 findings of exceptional case and attorney's fees. And the first one, which, which of course I study closely because I'm in front of Judge Gilstrap a lot, is in Judge Gilstrap and arises out of a case uh, that was tried last year where the plaintiff got an award of $25 million in the form of a lump sum royalty. So they come back in and they ask for a finding of exceptional case and attorney's fees and talk about all the terrible things that they say that the, their opponent, the defendant, did. And Judge Gilstrap starts out by saying that, as is typical in hard-fought, high-stakes civil litigation, the court had a lot of discovery and pretrial disputes. Uh, he had targeted sanctions. He had what he called stern directives at times in an effort to encourage the parties to shift their discovery tactics and work more cooperatively. He could see that, that the, the parties had a particular way of doing business on both sides, and he didn't like it, and he tried to change what they were doing. But he said something interesting after that. He said, if this were a simple case of limited reach, it might be out of the ordinary to have sanctions and directives like that. But he said it's not out of the ordinary in a complex case of substantial impact such as that particular case. So to me, that tells me that courts recognize that conduct that they might consider exceptional in a smaller case, unfortunately, is kind of part of the for the course in, in larger cases. And I don't know if, if that was your experience as well. Well, I mean, I never had, had a reason for a judge to talk to me in a, in a stern voice or give me the side eye. Uh, I assume that I was <laughs> always blameless. Um, but I, I get the, the judge's point on this is that a, a raised voice, a, a stern statement isn't justification for coming to the court with a 285 motion. It's really steering. It is. It is steering. And I've been in a couple of uh, hotly contested trials lately with Judge Gilstrap where he really lowered the boom on the parties and said, this is not how this case is going to go forward. And the parties followed that admonition. And the trial was a whole lot easier because you didn't have to worry about that. You just focused on getting your evidence out and, and parties worked together after that. But in this case, uh, kind of the opposite happened. Um, the plaintiff identified five categories of conduct it said supported its claim, and it started out with a fight over identifying email custodians. And the court rules on that and says, okay, no sanctions here, and uh, in the future I'll consider this conduct if and when an appropriate motion under 285 is decided, which is pretty standard. Well, the plaintiff says, well, we took this as a signal from the court that the defendant's conduct warranted fees, and the judge said, no, you're reading too much into the footnote. I just said that I will consider this when I'm assessing a motion for fees. And, and that's kind of the, um, uh, I mean, you're a West Texas boy, you'll get this. That's the, um, that's the rattle going off. That's the judge letting you know, I am keeping a list of who's been naughty and who's been nice. But the court said, that didn't mean I'm going to assess 285 fees based on this. I was trying to warn both of you uh, 
to stop having as many disputes. But at this point, the, the court says what the whole rest of the opinion is about, which is, he says, neither party is without blame on these issues. Both sides made a clear strategic decision. The plaintiff was going to demand overbroad discovery and then and rush to file motions to compel, and the defendants weren't going to produce anything until a motion to compel was filed. And Judge Gilstrap says, I tried repeatedly to get the parties to stop doing this, but apparently I wasn't able to. And he runs down all these other things, uh, corporate representative depositions, email production, non-email production, and repeatedly says, yep, there was improper conduct here, but Mr. Plaintiff, you were doing improper things too, so this isn't going to be a basis for 285. And when he gets to the end, he puts the, the quote that we all learned in law school that he comes to, he who comes to equity must come with clean hands. And he says, the plaintiff doesn't have clean hands, so I'm not going to give you 285 fees uh, to, uh, uh, for what the defendant did. So Michael, the quote I loved out of all of this uh, was that although the parties, and that's parties plural, uh, not singular, Although the party's conduct is not a model of how to practice before any United States district court, this court declines to find that ACORN is entitled to its fees. It's a, it's a great statement to really separate sanctionable conduct from bad conduct. Um, and really a, really a warning to anybody seeking discovery. If you're going to do overbroad discovery, you're probably not going to get get sanctions right. you're, you're going to excuse the jerk on the other side who's who you're having trouble working with you're going to you're going to excuse their conduct if you engage in the conduct and when he says it's not a model that's one of the things that makes this opinion useful because when he goes through and details what people did wrong he tells us that what the defendant was doing was wrong what the plaintiff was doing was wrong so this is kind of a primer on how not to do things it's, it's not quite the primer on how not to do things that our next case is, but it, it does make it very useful to go through and say, am I, am I engaging in this conduct? Because if I am, I better hope the other side's doing it too, or I'm going to get hammered at the end. Well, and it's a, for those looking it up, the, it's the uh, Acorn Samsung case, and it really is something that should be studied for, for anybody that's looking at acceptable, acceptable conduct. Inevitably, and the, the bad part of this, Michael, is people are going to be also looking at this to see what they can get away with and how how difficult they can be without getting sanctioned. Right. And, and, and I do think people are going to miss the point that the reason that the defendant got away with some of this conduct was because of what the plaintiff was doing. But you might not always be able to count on the other side being a jerk when you need them to, to excuse what you were doing. So that's the danger there. We had a couple of other interesting cases out of Judge Gilstrap last week, uh, one having to do with depositions. It was, a, it was one of the few cases we still have where cases are consolidated, and the plaintiff wanted, and, and the, the, uh, the plaintiff was trying to cut down the defendant's deposition of its corporate representative by saying, well, look, there's four cases or seven cases or something, just give them seven hours and they have to split it. Well, sometimes courts will do something like that. But in this case, the court said, no, you needed to show good cause or a compelling reason to limit the defendants below what they would have gotten individually. And you didn't show that here. So that's kind of a data point I put, I put back because that wasn't always the rule. Sometimes the 
the rule used to be something like uh, four hours plus one hour per additional defendant, and that way the, it wasn't seven times seven, but it might be seven plus five if you had seven right. defendants or something like that. So this is a useful data point for where we are now on that. Well, another interesting one that came up in front of Judge Gilstrap, Judge Gilstrap was a very rare motion in his court. It was a motion to lift a stay. You just don't right. see me do those because there are not a lot of stays granted, but it is a great data point in this Aegis Google case. Well, it is because it points out that all these requests are very fact specific. The, the plaintiff was asking the court to lift the stay based on the conclusion of ex parte uh, proceedings and Judge Gilstrap uh, decided to do that. The defendant said, well, but some of the patents are still subject to some uh, IPR uh, proceedings. And he said, well, but that's not enough to stop this from going forward. So it, it kind of lets you know, I need. It, it's not always cut and dried what your result's gonna be on this. So you need to look and see what facts you've got. But if there's a way forward, my experience with Judge Gilstrap has been and we've talked about this in the last few weeks with some of the orders where he goes forward at trial. If there's a path forward, he's going to take it. And he may find a path forward that you and your opponent didn't think was a path forward, but that's just the way, that, the way this works. So don't just assume, well, as long as I've got anything out there, the court's not going to go forward with the case. Well, now we we get to the northern district of texas uh, on an uh, exceptional case it's actually a fee award but probably not what what the parties were really thinking about and this is a great case to compare to the one we just talked about where there were no fees awarded where i think everybody that's seeking fees even against bad actors are coming away a little disappointed well no i agree and the thing that this tells us is in the case we just talked about, the conduct stayed the same the whole trial, in the whole case. In this case, the conduct changed and the award changed. And what happened in this case was the plaintiff, um, uh, when they were talking with the defendant both before and after suit was filed, they said, you're infringing, your product is infringing our patent. And they kept attaching products of their own product. And the defendant kept saying, that's not our product, that's your product. Well, well, no, it isn't, that's your product. So, so it, this went on for 10 months where the case couldn't really go anywhere because the plaintiff would never look at what they were sending to the defendant. Um, and in the process, the court also noted that uh, the plaintiff was engaged in some other conduct. Now, the court dismisses the case the first time after, after going through that and says there is not infringement shown of the of the products because you've got the wrong photographs attached so he dismisses it plaintiff repleads comes in the case goes forward a little further and then after some additional proceedings the court dismisses it a second time this time for good defendant comes in wants 285 finding and fees on everything and the court says you get fees up through the first dismissal because it went beyond just negligence. It went far beyond negligence. Your conduct was entirely inappropriate. And, and I love this. He talks about this wasn't just negligent. This wasn't just excusable attorney error. It displayed a degree of obfuscation and bad faith beyond mere attorney incompetence. I mean, you got to be working to be this bad. But so the court awards fees up to that point. But after that point, he says, the same conduct wasn't present. 
the predicate, there was a colorable claim, even though I dismissed it, there was a colorable claim for infringement. There was a legitimate basis for the claim uh, and there wasn't uh, objectionable conduct. So you get your fees up through the first dismissal, which in this case was $107,000. You didn't get your fees after that. So uh, 107,000 in fees on probably 40 to 50,000 in briefing. Uh, it's a hard way to make a living. Yeah, yeah, pro probably that that uh, they might have been better. Uh, it it might have been better to just limit it down to the fees for the first thing. And of course, for all we know, the plaintiff would have been willing to pay that or pay something that still would have put the defendant ahead. But but again, when you lay that next to the other opinion we have uh, from Judge Gilstrap this week, it gives you some really good data points on bad conduct that results in 285 awards. Well, in this this is a great example. It's never too too late to change your tactics, um, whether it be with a different lawyer or a different approach. You can help clean up some some prior bad bad acts. You raise a good point. I was talking with someone just the other day about that, and they raised the question of, well, does it signal weakness? Does it signal something if we change our conduct, if we change our lawyers late in the game? And I said, well, it, what it signals is that you've found a problem and you fixed it, that you found the leak and you've plugged it. So while you might think, a layperson might think, oh, well, you're, you're, it looks bad that you're having to make a change. Uh, I can tell you when I'm on the opposite, opposite side, I'm very disappointed when the other side starts making sense and when they start not filing the objectionable uh, pleadings. So it is absolutely never too late uh, to change your conduct. And this is an indication that courts will take that into consideration when it happens. Well, as we, we move to the Western District, um, I think we got a, an introduction for the new magistrate. You want to tell us, tell us the goal of, I guess, of the, the court with the new, new magistrate? Well, we did. We had uh, one of the regular meetings of Judge Albright's Patent Rules Advisory Committee by Zoom last Friday. And Judge Albright began that by introducing uh, uh, the incoming magistrate judge, Derek Gilliland of Longview, uh, who will be moving to the wrong side of I-35 in April and begin working as the second magistrate judge on the Waco Division docket. Derek's a familiar face uh, up here. He worked in Waco for a while uh, and then moved to uh, Dangerfield, where he worked for the Nick's Patterson firm, and now he's had his own firm uh, Sorry, Gilliland in uh, Longview, and he's done a lot of patent cases uh, in the Eastern District and in the Western District over the last several years. I'm very excited about having him there because he has so much experience in a lot of patent-heavy courts. Uh, one thing I remember telling him the other day is I'm looking forward to being in front of you because I know you know what all the tools are. When we bring up a regularly occurring uh, issue, you'll know, well, here's how, here's how Judge Gilstrap handled that. Here's how Judge Schrader or Judge Ward or Judge Mazant or Judge Albright or Judge Yackel, you've got all those errors in your quiver and can tailor it to what, what a case needs. So we were very excited about that. He'll be handling much of the discovery and the claim construction caseload for the Waco patent docket, as well as about a fifth of the non-patent uh, civil docket. And uh, of course, parties will have the opportunity uh, to consent to trial before him uh, once he gets on and starts doing uh, scheduling conferences. The court also noted that in 2021, he conducted 
107 claim construction hearings, and he's already had three patent trials to a verdict so far in 2022. So he often kind of gives us an introduction to, here's the state of what the Waco patent docket looks like, here's how many cases we've got, here's how many hearings we're having, and then he goes into the specific issues that he wants the committee's feedback on at that particular meeting. And, it, and it, at this meeting, there was one specific issue he wanted to talk to us about. Well, I guess one of the other topics that, that came up was with uh, court-ordered mediation. And I really like that you, you brought some emphasis to this topic because I, I hear tech companies, I hear maybe some of the California influence from time to time talking about mediation in the Eastern District, the Western District of Texas as being something very negative, uh, even more so than just general mediation. So I'd love to hear hear kind of the, the thoughts on mediation going forward and, and the use there in the, the Western District, at least. Well, what, what Judge Albright told us is that he's become convinced that it would be helpful to the efficient management of the docket if they had more cases settle a little earlier than they are now. And the, the idea is when, unlike Judge Gilstrap, with Judge Gilstrap, when you have your scheduling conference, you get your trial setting and that generally, unless there's a pandemic, it doesn't move. So he starts out with eight cases set and then it drops to three to two and then one. Well, Judge Albright doesn't do that. He sets trials after the claim construction hearing. And what he told us is, if I had even a little better idea how many cases are ready to go uh, three months from now or four months from now, it would help in setting it. So if you could just, if you're going to settle a case, if you could just settle it a couple, three months earlier than you would have otherwise, that's a big help to the court in knowing how many cases to set for a certain uh, week. So what he wanted to know is, from a practitioner's perspective, when's the right time to set for a deadline for court-ordered mediation. And again, when I say court-ordered, there's a footnote here. And that is that if the parties both tell the judge, you know, mediation's not gonna be helpful in this case, he won't order it. But if at least one of the parties thinks it will, he's gonna have a default deadline in here. And what he proposed was say 30 days after opening uh, expert reports. What did, what did people think about that? And some people said, that's fine. Some people said, no, we need it after rebuttal reports. Some people said, you know, right after Markman is a really good time to talk about settlement because you have constructions out. But we had a very, very useful discussion. Uh, he talked, Judge Albright talked about, was he gonna have a list or not have a list? And the answer is yes and no, no in patent cases, yes in non-patent cases. Uh, but not a pre-approved list, just a helpful list of here are people you can call if you want to. Uh, he's not going to have communications with me mediators, he said. Uh, and basically, we had a chance to talk to him about how does he see mediation as a tool uh, in his court. So you had all lawyers from all over the country talking about uh, how are you going to do this, how are you going to do that. But this will add a little bit more structure than we've had in the past and hopefully will encourage some cases to settle a little bit sooner. My input was that I like it a little bit on the earlier side. I mean, as I put it on the call, um, I don't really need to see a rebuttal report. Once I've got an opening report, I know there's going to be a round of reports that say did not. So I don't really need to pay for those. I know what the positions are, and, and then let's go mediate. But but there was good discussion about, in some cases, 
it may make sense to go past that. And the judge made clear if the parties say they want to move it to another date, that's fine with him. He's just trying to figure out what to put in his order as a starting point. Well, it's interesting. I, I've even seen mediators toying with multiple mediations, knowing that the patent world won't settle on the first one and just trying to to work through the the couple of couple of rounds that's necessary to get these cases resolved. Yep, that's absolutely the case. I remember back when cases used to mediate once and now it seems like it's don't tell anybody I said this, but it seems, it seems like it's three now. Um, after we talked about uh, mediation, uh, the uh, one of the co-chairs of the judges committee, John Garagna, went through the changes that the judge is anticipating, including in a forthcoming set of revisions to his OGP, his order governing proceedings. And there were several things, interesting things there that some of our listeners might be interested in. Uh, one has to do with deadlines for motion to transfer venue. The court used to have an earlier date for that. Then he pushed it back a little bit. Well, now he's going to push it back up. And the reason for that is so that venue discovery, if there is any, is going to be concluded several weeks before the scheduled claim construction hearing. Now, we know Judge Albright has an order now saying that he's not going to have a markman if there's a venue motion that hasn't been ruled on. This avoids having to take hearings off the calendar because it'll finish the briefing at least three or four weeks before the hearing. So he's got a chance to get that hearing out and doesn't have to take the hearing off. I'm sorry, get the order out and not not take the hearing off calendar. So when you start seeing an earlier de deadline, that's the idea. It's to try to 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 get those orders ruled on a little bit quicker than they have been. So Michael, I also saw that the, the judge put out a specific uh, procedure uh, recommendation. I'm not sure what the right word would be, but uh, some kind of guidance on indirect and willful infringement pleading. Right. We've talked uh, numerous times uh, about Judge Albright's procedure on uh, plaintiffs starting out with claims of indirect and willful infringement. And with willful infringement, certainly, and often with indirect, what he uh, does as a regular practice is he dismisses those right out of the box with leave to conduct discovery on them and with leave to replead them later if you uncover the facts that support them. Uh, we know that's his policy and the OGP is going to be modified to require a meet and confer on that issue and probably will provide a little guidance to, to let people know that that is his policy to avoid unnecessary motion practice. You don't need to file an opposed motion and you don't need to oppose a motion to do that because both sides are gonna get what they want, uh, but that is gonna be added to the OGP. Well, I also saw time limits on Markman hearings. Kind of yeah, interesting. Uh, the, the judge told us that it was his assumption. And now what he said on the, hall, on the call and what came out shortly after that were a little different, so let me explain. On the call, he said he's looking at changing the default time that he schedules claim construction hearings down from whatever it is now to just an hour. And um, I, I, I did not look up when he said that, so I couldn't tell if there were expressions of horror, but no one really had a problem with it. But what he said is, I think I, if I heard right, he said he'd only had one in the last year that needed more than an hour. Now, remember, he puts out... Uh, 
preliminary claim or proposed claim constructions before the hearing so you know what the constructions are, you know where the court is, and I know my experience with uh, Judge Payne does that and Marshall is, it shortens hearings substantially. So while in a normal Markman hearing, I need more time than that, if you're going to give me constructions ahead of time, I really don't. Now, what we were told after the hearing is that the court is looking more like one and a half to two hours, so it may not change as much, but that's still useful to know that the court typically is seeing that these hearings don't take more than an hour. And, and again, that doesn't surprise me. If I get preliminary constructions, I can give you a shorter hearing. So, so Michael, I'm going to lobby for you to throw something into the court when you get a chance. Judge Coe had the greatest rule on Markman hearings out here. And um, she would allow, what she ordered the parties to do is pick terms and then pick evenly matched junior associates. We want somebody like year three to five or year two to five. <laughs> you pick your two to five, they're pick their two to five. It's like a boxing <clears throat> match. We want, you know, the featherweights. We want, you, know, you save the good terms for the heavyweights. But she was trying to train the next generation. Uh, and I loved that uh, because, I mean, it was optional, but everybody I saw complied with it. And it's kind of a, a term that you knew was okay. You could give a third year, their first Markman. And that was, she'd give a little extra time for those terms for people to work through it and, and deal with it. And I wish oh, the that's, lawyers grow. That's great. And that actually was something that Judge Albright brought up on the hearing. He says his default going forward is going to be that all hearings, unless somebody requests otherwise, are going to be by Zoom. And the reason is that he doesn't mind. I mean, it's eight steps from him from his from his office to the courtroom. Um, he does it because he notices a lot more lawyers are able to attend and a lot more clients are able to attend. And he likes it when more lawyers are there, uh, clients are there, he, he welcomes the clients and he, and he thinks they can see better what's going on. But the thing that he really, you can tell how enthusiastic he is about it, is that young lawyers get to participate. And, and I'll talk more about this later because he went out of his way to talk about it, but younger lawyers get to participate more when they don't have to fight to be part of the travel team. And he can tell that, and that's why a major reason that he is indicating. Uh, he says he's the he's the biggest proponent of Zoom on the planet. And uh, but but I had that question come up in a case this week. Someone said, "Well, we got a Markman coming up with Albright. Uh, the other side's lawyer uh, is somebody in Waco. Is he going to have it live?" And I didn't know the answer before, and I know the answer now. Well, that 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 addresses one of the problems with the district courts that have said. We'll give you more time to argue if you'll bring a, a lawyer with six years and less of experience. We still have to bring them. Yeah. And that costs a lot of money to drive a lawyer around, especially these patent lawyers, you know, to drive them around, fly them around. Um, so it's not worth it. And Zoom solves that. If he ever paired that with an encouragement to use junior lawyer against junior lawyers, he could actually change, change the patent bar. Oh yeah, no, no, no. That's not that's not a bad idea because that. But the problem is, of course, that would that would require talking to the other side, and that would require coming up with an agreement. But but no, that would be a great thing to do because it would give an excuse to to bring the people in because it's like um, uh, I think Judge I heard Judge Gilstrap say this one time. He said, "I know who did the work. Y'all just don't let him stand up." 
and he used to have a rule on charge conferences that he would he would tell people or strongly encourage people to bring the associate in who'd been sitting in the courtroom watching trial for the last four days a because he knew that was probably the person who'd worked on the charge but also i mentioned it to him one time passing i said thank you for doing that because that it actually gave the lawyer on the other side that wouldn't have gone in a chance to go in and he said hey i remember what it was like being a first year associate so it gave these people a chance to get in and see see how this stuff is done well zoom zoom plus a little encouragement um could really be a game changer for these junior lawyers and you know what i found michael is that while lawyers will hate each other and, and fight over whether the document was produced when it comes to giving younger associates a chance, doing what's right for their team, they'll, they'll reach out to each other. Uh, oh yeah. Never, never had an argument, never even a crossword. Everybody's looking to build up their own team. No. And, and that was something that I really enjoyed about the last trial I had. It was, it was hotly contested, but as soon as the jury was out, everybody was, was cooperating and coordinating and trading stories and, and doing it kind of the way that, that you like to see it done. So, Michael, I'm going to give you that homework assignment. See if you can get hearings plus Absolutely. gentle encouragement. I understand. I understand. I will find a way to bring that up. <laughs> still still doing working with the university here. Our job is to, to help help lawyers. So oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and incidentally, that was the thing that Judge Albright actually closed out the meeting with was explaining he teaches a trial advocacy class at UT in Austin. And they start their their course standing up, arguing motions to transfer, and then they graduate to motions to summary judgment and motions. So he he has a, people that are working with these students all the time and he issued an open invitation anybody that wants to participate in that program at UT he told people uh, give Kat Lee a call and and she'll get you hooked up uh, to get involved we do that locally with the Baylor trial team that comes up to Marshall that we we judge every February they come up sit in the courtroom and Judge Gilstrap and Judge Payne rake them over the coals we sit in the jury box we rake them over the coals and kind of let them know how this compares to what you would actually see in real life so I guess I'm, I'm a little surprised. Um, I thought all the trial lawyers came out of Baylor. I didn't know any came out of UT. They do, and that's why they have to have so much more teaching at UT because uh, they're just not naturally as, as gifted that way. There's your softball for the day. So, <laughs> uh, well, as we talk about you know the judge you know training and trying to provide guidance, and we're really seeing a theme in what Albright's trying to do is put out guidance and develop lawyers, but this. This idea about uh, an order reflecting the rulings, it's the first time I've seen this, and I'd love a, a little more description on it, how you think it's going to play out. Well, what the what the, the court is going to do is put in the OGP a provision that emphasizes that the parties are to submit joint proposed orders after a ruling on discovery. Well, we already know that. That helps move things along. Uh, but then the clerk that was telling us that said what y'all can do is take your 500 word positions that you sent in to us before we had the hearing, put them into the order as well as the rulings so that the order that's published and available online will include the background of the dispute for other litigants to study. And I was just floored because that that's something that I remember two years ago at this meeting, we were telling Judge Albright, it's helpful to practitioners 
if you publish opinions on regularly occurring things, it may not be a big issue to the court, but if you uh, say, okay, this was the motion, here's what the party wanted, here's what the, the response was, here's what the order is going to be and why. If you'll put some orders out, we can take that back and, and tell people, here's kind of what the court's looking for. What the court is doing here is telling us on orders where I'm not writing an order, giving you the rationale, where I'm just saying, okay, that's granted, that's denied, you can put that stuff in the order so that people will know what happened going forward. And whether I won or whether I lost, a lot of times I want to have in what the dispute was because I know that that order is going to get used against me in a future case. And if I can include some information on it, making clear here's what the facts are, well, then I'll understand, oh, that's what it dealt with. You were asking for 37 depositions. That's why the court said more than six. You could only have six. Um, so, so that's something that I think is going to be very helpful going forward. Now, it's going to be more expensive. We're going to fight over it. But uh, that is a way that we can get more information out there so that people understand uh, what the judge's approach was and in what circumstances he found a request was well taken and which ones uh, he found that they weren't. Well, Michael, I'd love to, to move now to some venue opinions. Seems like there were a, a whole bunch that came out. Uh, my first thought is the venue fight doesn't seem to be slowing down at all. Maybe no, picking up. No, it really isn't. We're seeing fewer mandamuses, but uh, the venue opinions this morning alone, uh, starting work on next week's, uh, I, I read three, uh, and I've got several that are worth covering here. There was one, a uh, little bit unusual, and where, where Judge Albright had an issue that looked like a first to file argument, but he said it can't be first to file because the the case could not have been filed in the transferee forum. So he says, I've got to deny it for that reason, but tell you what I'll do. I'm going to stay the case until the uh, earlier filed court comes out with their claim construction. It won't be long, and that way we'll kind of avoid duplication of expert. So even though he couldn't grant the relief that you would normally see in this situation because the, the case could not have been filed there, he still tried to accommodate the purposes behind it. So I thought that was useful and that I, I kind of put that in the back of my head that I might actually make an argument to him that I that I um, claim is supported by common sense, even if it's not supported by the case law or the facts. Um, another case we had was uh, an improper venue case. We're starting to see the, or well, starting to see, we've seen a number of them. I already know we're going to have another one next week. And this was another situation where the defendant is arguing, okay, where the plaintiff is arguing, okay, the defendant doesn't actually have a facility, but they still have a regular and established place of business in the Western District through their employees, which are now working from home during the pandemic. Uh, because that's how companies work now. And Judge Albright said, no, you're asking me to go beyond the language of the statute and the Federal Circuit's test in Cray and said, and under these facts, no, the homes of the employees were not the places of the defendant. But but that's that's an improper venue argument that, that we're seeing pretty regularly now and pretty regularly denied. Uh, we also had a motion to transfer to Austin granted uh, Judge Albright rejected the plaintiff's argument that Oracle's, Oracle's recent relocation to Austin should be disregarded as recent and ephemeral and said they've only got 3,000 employees and 900,000 square foot feet on their campus, uh, so that's that'll get you a transfer to Austin. Uh, 
Now I've got to, I've got to ask if if three thousand employees at nine hundred thousand square feet doesn't qualify as an, a local investment. I'm not I'm not sure what would. That, <laughs> well, that wouldn't seem like uh, a scratcher to me. That actually by uh, by local investment in the Austin area that is not particularly large for some companies. Uh, recently, you're seeing. Uh, companies are, are executing the biggest lease ever in downtown Austin. They're building giant facilities. So you're going to see those sorts of facts coming up. But I thought the plaintiff was kind of uh, uh, going against the uh, wind, arguing that 900,000 feet was recent and ephemeral. Maybe they meant that facetiously. I don't know. Now, the, the order that everybody got all exercised about this week is what we're calling the Texas Hold'em uh, venue order. And that was an order where uh, Broadcom had a witness that, that said nothing happened in Texas. There's nothing in Texas. Nobody's ever been in Texas. I don't even know that there's anything east of, of, uh, of New Mexico. And then they get down to the exchange where he's being asked because the defendant has a facility in Austin. And, and the judge says he got called on his 2-7 off suit. He got asked, what's your understanding of what type of products are worked on at your company's Austin facility. And he says, well, I have very little. Uh, almost everything I've worked on has been done at other facilities. So I don't know exactly what happens in Austin. Um, that was your deponent that was supposed to be saying, here's what's done in Austin and there's not much done there. So, so the judge went on at some length talking about the specific investigation, talking about the facts of that, that case and saying that um, he, he said, it's clear there is activity in the Western District. It's clear that the proof, uh, such as it is, that there isn't work being done in the Western District was questionable. So he denied the motion in that order. But that, but the uh, Texas Hold'em reference got a lot of people's attention. Well, and to me, it was sad that that drew the attention because I, I remember a quote from from Judge Ward. Uh, what was it? Too cute by half. Um, yes, that's what this looked like to me that it was carefully crafted to obfuscate, maybe mislead? Uh, absolutely. He said the, uh, the, the judge went through the facts of the investigation and said someone else did it. The person you're putting up as the witness doesn't have knowledge of it. Uh, he kept adding in disclaimers to discredit employees in Austin. But the thing that he kept doing was, was basing it on other cases other products, other cases they've been involved in. And as we know, the Federal Circuit has told us, Judge Albright, you can't make a decision about what witnesses are necessary based on what you think, based on what you've seen in other cases. It's got to be based in this case. And those words came back to haunt the uh, defendant here because that's kind of what their employee had done. He said, oh, I've been doing this job for all these years and we don't do anything there and nothing's ever been part of there. But when you looked at what he said about the actual facts of the case, you ran into the the uh, two seven off suit, as the judge put it. Well, then we've got um, what you refer to as the Apple Hotel. I think adds a, a nice little flavor. Oh yeah, the um, it, it is starting. For those that don't know what's going on, a Apple's putting in a, a billion dollar facility uh, around Austin, which we now know is going to include a. a was it 190, 192 room hotel in it? 
So Apple comes in, wants a transfer based on convenience, and uh, Judge Albright goes through all the facts here, but the facts are a little different here than what we normally see. The, the judge points out that Apple's footprint in the Western District is much larger. He points out that the plaintiff is also in Texas. He points out the plaintiff doesn't have any contacts or any, anything in California. He points out that the events giving rise to the action occurred in both venues. You had manufacturing going on in the Western District of Texas. So when you compared the, the cases fit to Texas, to the parties and, and to the facts of the case in Texas, and then you compared it to California, he said on these facts, he wasn't satisfied that Apple had satisfied uh, its burden. And he talked about the convenience that he's supposed to look at for these witnesses. And he says, well, Apple's got a hotel for its employees for their convenience when they're in Austin, so that the balance of conveniences is starting to shift a little bit when the witnesses are, are able to travel freely for business and they don't have the same inconvenience that they had uh, when they were having to stay in um, uh, other facilities and make other arrangements. So that's an interesting set of facts we haven't seen before to this extent, so I suspect that's not the last that we're going to hear of this case. So, so, Michael, I wanted to, to close up with two cases, uh, one in Waco and one in, in the Austin uh, division. The one in Waco is, was addressing the claim construction deadline or the claim construction point in time for discovery. And I guess the, the question is, you know, how firm is the, the court's rule on, on discovery? No, and, and that's, that's a, a characteristic of the Western District of Texas before Judge Albright, and one that he's maintained, is that there is a moratorium on discovery before claim construction. Unlike the Eastern District, there's not, other than some kind of halfway, uh, I'm not being derogatory, I'm just saying when you compare what's required to what's required under other rules, the disclosures only go part way and you can't get document discovery or depositions or anything beyond that. So you have that moratorium up until claim construction. But the question has always been, well, what discovery can you get before claim construction? Because Judge Albright has been clear, if you've got something that you think will help promote the efficient resolution of the case, come see me. And I've done that. I've When there's a motion to dismiss and we think there's, there's discovery relevant, we ask for that. The plaintiff might ask for venue discovery. Well, in this case, the plaintiff was suing Dell, and it went to Judge Albright and said, I would like for the court to open discovery in a limited way before claim construction by requiring Dell to give me some basic discovery on the number of accused devices and contact information on the defendant's supplying manufacturers, because they were all going to be overseas, and, and the, uh, the products were, were, or, or the parts at issue were made overseas. And they said, if we don't start until claim construction, because all this stuff is going to have to go through lengthy procedures, it's going to slow the case down. So Judge Albright found that under the facts of this case, that was a good argument. And this was worthwhile to go ahead and ask the defendant, provide the basic information so that the plaintiff is ready to go with discovery against these third-party suppliers, foreign third-party suppliers, as soon as we get through with claim construction. Well, that just seems like good, good planning and something that people often overlook is thinking about third party discovery until it's too late. And in, in this one, it seems a plaintiff was was thinking ahead and the court recognized that. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and it'll be interesting to see to what extent, uh, I, and again, I can't, I can't overstate this. Judge Albright is open to anybody that wants to come in and say, hey, we've got this early discovery we want to do, and he may say yes, he may say no, but this is one of those discovery orders where the court provided the rationale for the ruling so that you can look at it and say, okay, now, where do I think I fall on this continuum? Well, Michael, I would love to, to finish the case with, or finish the day with the case from the Western District, but from Judge Yackel. It seems like a, it's maybe an outcome that people would associate more with California than Texas. I, I think that's correct. Um, the case is a patent case that was pending uh, in front of Judge Yackel in Austin. So we're down the road about 90 miles from Waco. Uh, we're in the Austin division where a lot of Waco cases for different reasons end up. And Judge Yackel is presented with a request to stay the case uh, and because IPRs had been instituted as to three of the seven asserted patents. It wasn't a complete overlap with what was being asserted. But Judge Yackel said that IPR petitions were timely filed, the plaintiff was not a, was not a competitor, and a stay would simplify the issues. So he granted the stay. That probably is not the ruling you would have seen from some other courts, but since we're all very interested in what's the difference between what a ruling would be in Waco and what it would be in Austin, um, it's one to look at and, and kind of put, put in the back of your head and think about uh, when you're deciding where you want to be and whether you really want to fight to go from uh, Waco to Austin, from Austin to California, uh, just another thing to think about. Well, it's, it's a good reminder. The Western District of Texas is a big place. and There's more than one judge. Absolutely. So with that, Michael, I wish you a good week and we'll talk soon. Okay. Talk to you soon, Wayne. Take Bye -bye. care.